I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We begin reading in verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many... But his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? As we reach the midway point of Ecclesiastes, I think it's probably fair to say we're all ready uh, to reach the pivot in the book, uh, to reach that shift uh, where we begin to, to be told more answers, where more light starts to shine in and break in and uh, explain some of the difficulties and vanities that Solomon has been raising and lamenting. And the book will begin to turn a little bit, kind of slowly, starting in chapter 7, and there will be more uh, positive affirmations, we might say, uh, being made in the closing chapters in the second half of the book, and some answers given, although he will continue on with his theme of vanity. Uh, But before we get to this, to this slow, gradual turn, uh, we first must travel through chapter 6, a chapter that Uh, many people would argue is the low point of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Certainly includes some of the darkest words, some of the most difficult, troubling language in the book, and this comes on the heels of many difficult things already spoken, already said. One second.
Can you hear me? All right. So as we reach this kind of low point, as many would call it, we do see some difficult stuff here. We find Solomon suggesting that it is perhaps fair to say of some people that it would have been better for them to have died at birth than to have lived their life. This is a a troubling thing to, to even entertain or consider, to think that this could even come out of a biblical writer's mouth. In these verses, Solomon considers the insatiable, the unsatisfied desires of mankind, the craving for more and the pursuit of satisfaction, and how this often plays out very tragically when satisfaction doesn't arrive. And we will see this desire for something satisfying and lasting will not be ultimately satisfied by things found under the sun, and he will say there's simply no getting around this. It's fixed. This is the way it is. This is life under the sun. We might fight it. We might protest it, argue against it, but this is the way it is. And this inescapable reality reveals the vanity, the vapor-like nature of life. And when this text, I would submit to you, does its work in the heart, when it has its effect of laying bare our constant restlessness, it ought to then drive us to Christ and to his eternal kingdom, where the longing of eternity, which cannot be satisfied by things in this world, is met. So let's begin by looking at the tragedy of not enjoying the good things that one has. Uh, The tragedy of not enjoying the good things one has. So chapter 6 begins with a couple of examples, or perhaps we might, uh, maybe case studies, uh, demonstrating the vanity, this vapor-like nature of earthly goods, and seeking ultimate satisfaction in them. Now, if you remember last week and at the end of chapter 5, Solomon spoke of the blessing of receiving wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy those things. Uh, He called this the gift of God. But now, in chapter 6, he considers those who have the goods, the good things in life as he'll call them, but who do not have the accompanying gift of being able to enjoy them. So verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. This situation that Solomon describes here, he calls evil. He calls it a vanity. He calls it something that weighs heavily on mankind in general. It's the kind of thing that people all over the world would look at as tragic, would view as sad, something that would leave people shaking their heads in bewilderment, maybe grief or even anger. It seems wrong even, seems perhaps to be unjust, unfair, not right that this has occurred. And the situation is then described as a man who has it all. 
A man who has wealth and possessions and honor. He's well thought of by others as well. Well esteemed. He lacks nothing, it says, of what he desires. What he needs. And yet, he is not given with it the power or the ability to enjoy these things. Rather, it falls to a stranger to enjoy. The specific situation in the man's life is not mentioned. Most commentators figure that Solomon is envisioning here a life that is cut short or some tragedy befalling him. Maybe uh, his land was overrun by an invading army, a foreign army. The word stranger here, when it says his stuff is enjoyed by a stranger, could be translated foreigner. So maybe his land's been overrun and his goods have been taken by an enemy. He's dead or he's hauled off to exile or something like that. Or perhaps he's thinking of a man who is on the cusp of retirement, set to now be able to enjoy all these things that he has been given, only to die. There are a number of specific scenarios that could fit these words. But what Solomon draws attention to is that at the end of the day, God didn't grant him the ability to enjoy these things. God could have governed the situation differently, but didn't. In his providence, this man was never allowed to enjoy these things. Again, most commentators who who, uh, comment on this uh, think he probably has in mind uh, some providential act, like, again, an invading army or perhaps an early untimely death, what we would consider untimely. When a young person dies what we might say before their time or what seems to be their time in in, in human language Uh, this is sad no matter who they are Uh, even if this is the most if this was the most wonderful christian you know and you're absolutely really confident that they are eternally with the lord and in a better place and, and all of that it is still sad But the tragedy is made all the more depressing when it occurs to someone who is living for that time when they figured they'd be finally satisfied and able to enjoy the things for which they labored. The person who's working hard now, living hard now for that time that they'll be able to enjoy everything they've got. They've accumulated everything, but before they have that moment, they're gone. They're dead. That day never comes. Jesus spoke of this kind of life uh, in, in Luke chapter 12, in what is often referred to as the parable of the rich fool. And in that parable, Jesus, speaking of this rich fool, puts words in his mouth. This rich fool says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You can hear echoes of Ecclesiastes in Jesus' words there. So I think verses 1 and 2 here, we have a reminder right away 
of what we've seen a number of times already, that it is good to enjoy these good things in life, food, family, possessions, toil, the things God gives. It's good to enjoy these things and yet important not to set one's hopes on them, to not live purely for these things. Uh, Such, if you're living to hopefully one day have enough and be able to enjoy them, that day may certainly never arrive. But if verses 1 and 2 describe the person unable to enjoy wealth due to some catastrophe and his life being cut short, verses 3 to 6 picture a contrast. Namely, the person who has every opportunity to enjoy his goods, but simply will not and cannot find satisfaction in them. So look at verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. The problem with the man in this example is not a tragic cutting short of his days, but the fact that his soul was not satisfied with life's good things, as Solomon says. It reminds us of what we saw in chapter 5 and verse 10, where Solomon said, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Despite all that this man and his example would accumulate, and of course it's a hypothetical example here, despite hundreds of descendants viewed as a great blessing in Scripture, despite a 2,000-year lifespan, more than twice that of Methuselah even. If these things were to happen to one, and yet they cannot accept their place in this world, they cannot rejoice in the good things as temporal gifts from God, if they instead are consumed with a love of these things and a desire for more, Solomon says, a stillborn child is better off than he. That child never sees the light of day, but proceeds immediately to its eternal rest. The man who lives 2,000 years. Am I on or am I off? Just use a mic. It's on. It's on. 9024. Test, test. Check, check, check. Yeah. No idea. No idea. Great. It's on, it's on. Solomon compares this kind of life unsatisfied to a stillborn and determines the stillborn is better off. It never does see the light of day, but proceeds proceeds immediately to its eternal rest. The man who lives 2,000 years 
he will end up in the grave eventually as well, but only after two millennia of chasing the wind, of fighting against this world that God created, of seeking satisfaction in his goods that never comes. And again, this is a tragedy. It is a shame. It is something to shake your head at. A stillborn, we know, of course, is a great tragedy and sadness. So Solomon is intentionally drawing this comparison to highlight the absurdity and the vanity of being supplied with so much of life's good things, including long life, many descendants, possessions, etc., and yet having zero satisfaction in it, only to one day die after 2,000 years and end up just in the same place as that stillborn. So even as it is good to enjoy life's good things, this is not an automatic for people. These two contrasting accounts give us examples of the vanity of pursuing earthly goods as some ultimate satisfaction. We could be prevented from enjoying them by God's providence, or we could be pursuing them for 2,000 years and still never have enough. It is vanity. In the end, as he has said before, you will die and you will eventually be forgotten. you think about even the life of Methuselah, I mentioned him earlier. If I were to ask you who that is, I wonder if we all know who that is. Uh, He, of course, is the man who lived uh, the longest, uh, at least in the biblical record, uh, had the longest life. A lot of us would probably know that, but how much more do we know about this man? There's not a lot given uh, in Genesis where it talks of him. Uh, He had a son, we're told. He had more than one, but he had a son named Lamech. And he had a grandson whose name was Noah. This is really all we know about this man who lived over 900 years prior to the flood. Prior to the breakdown in which God limited human life. And People think it will be different. We'll leave a legacy that is somehow ultra-meaningful and lasting. As we just look at life under the sun, as people would deny and suppress the truth about God and unrighteousness. But if we would stop and just consider this, consider the meaning and significance of it all, there's nothing there. And this is what Solomon is, tri- is driving home to us. He continues here in verse 7 by further reflecting on man's insatiable appetite. This urge that we have for something more. This is what explains the fact that a person could live, why he could say a person could live 2,000 years, have so much, and yet still be unsatisfied. This is the second point of our outline, man's insatiable appetite. Verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth. Yet his appetite is not satisfied. 
For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Solomon brings up the matter of food here, but he's using it as an illustration of man's broader desires going unfulfilled, even as man acquires more. So in verse 7, he says that man works so as to feed himself, and yet his hunger is never permanently satisfied or filled. We've seen him talk about these nasty cycles of life that never end, and this is one of them. Man works so as to be able to eat, and then he eats so as to be able to gain strength to return to work. And then he continues working so he can eat again, and so on. The cycle goes until he dies. And with regard to this unsatisfied appetite, wisdom doesn't take it away or resolve it. For what advantage is the wise man over the fool? In this regard, none. He can't solve this problem. Nor can a poor man who has great insight into how to conduct himself before others, though he may in the end attain to a better work, a higher status, he is able to attain food through knowing how to work the system. one working? All right. Enough of that. So again, even though a a poor man may know how to conduct himself and figure out how to gain a leg up, increase his status, get a better job, he will still spend his days on the never-ending quest of satisfying his appetite. Verse 9 is then a parable reminding us that, of course, it's better to be looking at it than to be looking for it. It is better to have your food in front of you than to be hungry. The possession of what we seek is good in this case. And yet it, too, is also vanity precisely because of the previously mentioned cycle. You possess that food now, it is good, and yet it will not be lasting. And so it will repeat itself, this cycle, over and over. We arrive at mealtime only to go back to the beginning again. We never arrive in such a way that we're finally full, never to eat again. And as he's speaking about food here, of course, he's speaking about food, but in context, it seems clearly to illustrate much more than that. It illustrates the insatiable appetite of man for more, for more things. He said back in chapter 1, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. There's always more that we're after. Solomon has pointed this out over and over, that man has a restlessness in always desiring more things, more stuff, more understanding. There's a lack of contentment, a lack of satisfaction. And we might be tempted to say that this is purely an evil thing in man, 
But Solomon has also told us in chapter 3, verse 11, that God has put eternity into man's heart. There is a yearning and a longing that is part of who we are. An instinct, if you will, that there ought to be more. That there is something greater. That it is a shame when somebody dies, particularly if they die young, but, it, but that it's a tragedy at any age. And a death for any reason. When we seek for ultimate satisfaction in that which is not meant to fulfill it, like wealth, it necessarily leaves us unsatisfied. And we continue the search. We continue looking for more. And again, as we've talked about before, back in chapter 2, Solomon is clear that the, the, the fool understands things don't satisfy and wealth doesn't satisfy, but he just, he's not satisfied now, but he just thinks of a little more than I'll have enough. And yet it never arrives. Temporal things cannot satisfy eternity on the hearts of man. So I think there is some sense in which this restlessness is supposed to be present as we dwell in a temporal world and it bears witness to God himself. And herein lies an important difference between the typical secularist and the believer, the Christian. The believer is not seeking ultimate satisfaction in goods and in food and in earthly things. The believer acknowledges that such ultimate and eternal satisfaction is found in the eternal one. And our ultimate experience of satisfaction is yet to come. It is an eschatological one that we look ahead to. We have some satisfaction now and contentment now, but still wrestle in this temporal world with our fallenness and with our flesh and still fight these desires for more and so on. The beginning of the service we read from John chapter 6 where Jesus used this endless cycle of seeking food to point to eternal food to make a spiritual point again in John 6 27 he said do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life which the son of man will give you and in verse 33 for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus is telling us he is the bread that satisfies to eternity. And so Christians cannot break the cycle of food and work, but we can live within this temporal world. We can receive these things as gifts from God in his kindness understanding that this is not none of this is designed to satisfy us forever or satisfy that eternal longing so we can find gladness in life's good things as we use them rightly not trying to make of them make more of them than they're designed to do as long as man keeps trying to make temporal things ultimate and fulfill an eternal longing, it is nothing but vanity. There are no doubt objections here that would be raised to what Solomon is saying, but 
he now just goes on to reveal the futility of argument. That's our third point, the futility of argument. Verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Once again, we're reminded that there's nothing new under the sun. The way things are, are the way things have always been. And particularly here, he's saying that what man is, man's nature and this, even the nature of the world that we live in, is already named and known. Now, the word for man in Hebrew is the word Adam or Adam. And quite likely here, as he refers to man a number of times here in these verses 10 to 12, it is meant to remind us of Adam and of his fall into sin. That nothing has changed of mankind and of man's nature since that time. There's nothing really new to be discovered about who we are as human beings. There's nothing really new to discover, moreover, about this world in which we live. It has fallen. It is subject to futility. It has been cursed by God. In verse 10, the one that man is unable to dispute with then is none other than God Almighty. He is the one that is stronger than man, stronger than he. We might object and argue about the way life is under the sun. We might think it should be different. We might not like aspects of what we find. But our argument will be futile. In fact, as verse 11 says, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? The more we argue, the more we just end up spewing emptiness and more vanity, not bringing light or clarity. You might recall the book of Job. There's a lot of words in the book of Job. He says a lot. His friends say a lot. And you read through it, you try to follow the argumentation and what all is going on. Job wants explanation from God. He has issues, and we would say probably legitimate questions, it would seem to us, about life under the sun, concerning the way he has been treated. There was a man who lacked ability to enjoy life's good things. Much of his good things, family and wealth and so on, taken from him. Pain, physical pain that squelched his ability to sit, his ability to enjoy food. And yet when God answered Job, he doesn't really answer all of his questions, but he reveals to Job just who God is. And at the end of it, Job says in chapter 42... I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Then he quotes what God said to him. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Then Job responds, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. In verse 5 he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now... My eye sees you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
All these words he says, he doesn't use the word vanity, but it's the same idea. I uttered what I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. We might wish life was more certain, that goods would satisfy our longings, that we would be able to maybe grasp the big picture, how everything fits together, what exactly is going to happen, what exactly will become of my life, etc. But all of this is a vain pursuit. And Solomon then concludes this section, verse 12, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? For the one who would reject the scriptures and what Solomon is saying and driving home, where will you turn to find your meaning? How will you determine something as basic as what is good? How can you answer what comes next in the future or after death? The implication here is that these answers come to us from God, the one that is stronger than man. And your arguments against all this is really an argument with God, and He's telling you you're not going to win. The Almighty has spoken, and this is the way it is. If that describes you, fighting with God about the way this world is, demanding it have more certainty, still stubbornly continuing on to insist on finding your ultimate satisfaction in worldly things, this text tells you you're not going to win them. To stop fighting it. The world... Life under the sun is as the Bible describes it. Sinful, repetitious, fleeting, and on its own, wildly unsatisfying. As Paul says in Romans 8, it has been subjected to futility on account of sin. You might desire it to be otherwise. You might fight this, but it's not going to change anything. What has come to be has already been named. There's nothing new about any of this. There's a longing for something better, something satisfying, but this earthly life cannot and will not bring it to pass. A political revolution to bring about a new society is not going to do it. It will not change what God has said, nor will staving off the revolution. It won't bring about ultimate satisfaction either. He is helping you and I out of kindness to see this and to understand this. That we would not put our hope in this world. See this. Acknowledge your own sins against the one who is stronger than you. The one you cannot resist. You will answer to him. Even if you live a long life, eventually do not all go to the same place. Eventually time will run out and you will face God's judgment. 
But the despair of Ecclesiastes and all that Solomon's getting at here is not simply meant to leave us low, to depress us, that we walk away with our head down, everything's terrible. It has a purpose. It is wounding us here in order to heal. It tears down in order to build us up. It is again, as we've said before, a message that calls out for resolution and points ultimately to the gospel. It prepares the way for the good news that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners from this cursed world that renders everything futile. And the gospel promises that all who trust in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross, rose again from the dead, will be saved, graciously pardoned, counted righteous, and brought into God's eternal kingdom. And the risen Lord has ascended to the Father, but He will return one day. He will return to consummate His kingdom. And all who trust in Him will be resurrected with imperishable bodies to dwell with Him eternally. You can see that more explicitly laid out in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the answer to this problem of futility, to all that Solomon is lamenting here. Man is not going to fix this. Instead, we look to Christ who will. We receive, the scriptures say, His kingdom by faith, by trusting in Christ. And we await His return to consummate it. And so for all trusting in Christ, believing in that gospel message, remember again this eternal hope that you have. And set your eyes on things above where Christ is seated, as Colossians says. Set your hopes not on the uncertainty of riches and the things of this world that cannot satisfy ultimately. Set your hopes instead on God. And as you look out at our restless world with all of its agitating unrest, various theories, dissatisfaction, be reminded of the truthfulness of Scripture. There's a reason we have not solved this all in our history. There's a reason why we've had pretty good societies and yet we still think we should throw overthrow this and tear it all down. Because man is sinful. We will not set up the utopian society. The very best of mankind will not attain that. It is only Christ who does, who will. And so let us be unashamed and hold forth Christ as we have opportunity to our confused and sinful world that is angrily raging ultimately against God, though they may not even realize it. And let us remember, even as we feel the conflict within and become frustrated by things that go on around us, that ultimately... We look to our eternal reward 
the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and take comfort and joy in that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness in giving us your word that deals very with, with a brutal honesty at times about our world and about our own hearts, our own sinfulness. It is not just that the world around us is sinful, but we are sinful. Father, we all have no hope other than Christ. I pray that every person here would boast in him alone. Father, we do continue to call out to you for, for mercy on our neighbors. We pray for opportunities to proclaim the truth about this world. As there is much confusion, give us courage. to call out sin but then also to point to Christ the true hope of the world Father we thank you that you have provided food that does not spoil that ultimately That longing for satisfaction is found in Christ. Father, we praise you for this eternal inheritance that awaits us. God, I pray that we truly would find joy in that. That you'd give us wisdom in these days to speak truth with our neighbors do so courageously and boldly and directly and yet father knowing our own sinful hearts keep us from fleshliness and sinful anger father we pray that you would make your gospel effective everywhere it's being preached that even as this world in which many seek hope in crumbles around us. I pray that many would see the folly and error of their ways, their idolatry, and would look instead to Christ. Father, we thank you for your many mercies to us. In Jesus' name, amen.